Okay. Good evening. Uh, my name is Karen Kennerly. I'm director of Penn American Center, uh, which is uh, hosting this evening tonight with its uh, open book committee. I want to introduce um, the person who will give the introduction to the program and set its context, Walter Mosley. Um, Walter's works are among us. They're in our bookshelves. They're in all the bookstores. They're on film screens. His works are very, very well known indeed. What's less well known are his good works, which is to say... His uh, philanthropic and side that I mean the side of Walter that participates in society gives to society uh, where we need him the most. He is on the board of the National Book Awards. He is on the board of the Poetry Society of America. He is a vice president of Penn, and he is the founder and the chair and the. Uh, um, Envisioner, I would have to say, at the Open Book Committee. Walter? Um, hmm. You know, I'm not really the envisioner of the Open Book Committee. It's, 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 it's funny because uh, the, the way things happen, you know, where you can, you can like, do things. And I, I suppose it's very, very easy to take uh, the credit for this. I, I remember I was like, I joined Penn, you know, and... And Meredith Tax took me aside. And Meredith Tax, I think, had decided that she no longer wanted to worry about the Open Book Committee because she had other things that she needed to do. And so she took me to have coffee one day, way up near uh, Columbia, and said, uh, you should do this. And, I, and, you know, it's like I was at a point, you know, that, you know there's at that point in all of our, uh, us writers, our careers, where we say yes to anything, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's just like, yes, whatever they ask, whatever they say. I said, well, listen, you might be able to read one of your poems if you go to Anchorage. You know, you have to pay for yourself and stay there. And then, like, two days later, we have a thing for you in Florida, definitely. You know, so, okay, I'll do them both. You sure now? And so I said I would do the, um, the open book committee. And, you know, it's, it's interesting about the open book committee because um, it's... Uh, I'm really the way I am. You see me right now is the way I, I always am, and so when we would have these meetings, you know, there are a lot of people. You know, one people kind of believe that that uh, black people and then even further people of color are kind of monolithic, and that we all sit in the rooms and agree with each other. It's kind of like the same fantasies that that we have about white people. I think, <laughs> you know, that. But really, the truth is that you know nobody agrees on anything, and so we had a a series of meetings that lasted for about a year. Really, we would meet and people would just argue. Or at first, they didn't even start off, we didn't even argue. What would happen is somebody would say, well, I believe that we should do this and this and this and this. And another person would say, I agree with that. But now, uh, we want to talk about my thing. And, and they would go, you know, they would talk about that. And, we, and we, this happened for like a year, a year and a half. And I think I ran through a couple of assistants who, who just couldn't even take it. They said, what are you doing? Don't you do work? You know? And I would say, this is work. It's, uh, but we slowly have to come together and we slowly have to to under, understand these things. And so, um, now, it, it also so happens is now that I still do say yes to everything. And so, like, I'm actually going to be in a, a panel in about an hour or a half an hour in some other part of New York. So, but I, but I agreed to come here and, and to introduce the, uh, the uh, 
not the, the, the panel, they, they, they know how to do that themselves, but, but, the, uh, but the Open Book Committee. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Open Book Committee and, and tell you what it is, tell you what our goals are, tell you why we're here. And um, the, to begin with, I want to thank uh, India Amos, Mylin Chang, and Karin Kennerly, and the rest of the staff at Penn, because they've been very helpful and very supportive and put, put a lot of time and work and effort into trying to make, into trying to make things happen. I also want to thank uh, the Open Book Committee itself, which is like, a, I think like, there must be 50 people on the Open Book Committee. No more than eight or nine come to any meeting. But there's 50 people out there. And they're very, they're very good, and they're, and they're people who really, who really, really care about uh, publishing, about where publishing is going, and what uh, our places in publishing, when I say ours, um, I'm talking about all of us. And what I, I want to talk about, you know, there, there's, a, there's a certain amount of, I suppose, animosity when it comes to being uh, excluded from, uh, from anything, from someplace where you think that you belong. Uh, and often there's arguments and fighting and, uh, and people wanting to express their anger. All of this makes sense and, and should happen and does happen. Uh, but that's not really my, my aim today, and it's not really so much what I'm thinking about. What I'm really thinking about much more is, is building. And you know, when you think about building, you think about using what's there and building on what's there. Um, it, the purpose of the, the Open Book Committee is to broaden the range of the publishing world and to deepen its reserves. That's really, that's really what we want to do. We want to come into this, this, uh, this world, this world of publishing, which is so awfully white, and, uh, and change it, and make it so that it reaches a bigger audience, and so that it has a greater sensibility about itself and its work, which affects both um, white and, and non-white publishers. We all know that uh, it's... Uh, in a literate society, that anybody can read a book. And it's our business, and I think also our art, uh, to find those readers and to address their needs. Um, one of the problems is that the potential readers and book buyers are sorely underrepresented in positions of power in mainstream publishing. That's an understatement. I guess everybody here knows that. Um, you know, I think that you'd have to go an awfully long way to find a Native American publisher, for instance or editor, or publicist, or probably even files clerk, but we're not talking about files clerks right now. Um, because of that, people of color are excluded from the spine of American culture. And I really see that the printed word is the spine of American culture. Everything that happens comes from print. I mean, there's television, there's movies, there's Nintendo. They make a lot more money, but they don't inform the culture. What informs the culture and what makes our world, what changes our world, what documents our world, is, is the written word. It also limits markets open to mainstream publishers. You know, I was at Haki Matabuti's store, uh, which is closed since then, in Chicago, and he was saying that he couldn't get mainstream publishers, salespeople, to come to his bookstore. And he, he would like call them and say, well, come on down. I would like to look at your books. And they go, well, Sorry, I, we can't make it this time. We're too busy. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. So, you know, and like Haki you know, represents a lot of people. Um, this, is, this is a big problem. But the problems are, are very complex, it seems to me. From, on one hand, you have uh, publishers, white publishers, or people who represent the white publishing world who think that the only way that you can get people of color into publishing is through entry positions. 
And they don't see any problem at all in hiring Jackie Onassis to be a celebrity publisher. But to find somebody uh, black or brown or red or yellow, I mean, it's like impossible. So what, you can only be like a student. So you have people saying to you, we can only hire people uh, who make $16,000 a year. And they don't seem to like that job because if a black person is smart enough, uh, they could get a job someplace else. Of course, the logical question is, well, if a white person is smart enough, they couldn't get a job someplace else? I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So there's a, there's a kind of a confusion going on in the publishing world. And on the other hand, you have black and brown and yellow and red people who are publishing professionals who feel isolated and alienated and misunderstood in an overwhelmingly white publishing world. And these are, these are the kinds of problems that the Open Book Committee wants to address. And it's the kind of like, facts and truths that we want to like, get out to people, say, this is what's happening. It's OK that you had lunch with Nelson Mandela, but you're still a racist. And you're still living in a racist world, and you're still doing, you know, this is like is a racist activity. Because when you walk on up and down the halls, everybody's white. And so the people who control this incredibly powerful institution are not people of color. Um, now, I, I want to go further, and, and I want to say, and I want to keep on saying that this is not another kind of equal opportunity program. It's not I'm against that. But this, this is not what we're talking about here. We're not interested in quotas, per se. And we're certainly not interested in getting butts in chairs, you know, saying, well, is, it, is somebody black sitting there? Is somebody brown sitting there? We're happy. That's not what we're asking for. Um, we're not saying that we need more black people in important positions of publishing. We're saying that we want uh, more people of color from all backgrounds in, in publishing. And, and I think that this is a very important thing for many of us to remember, that people start to say, well, we want black people to do it, you know. It so happens that even though people of color aren't well represented in publishing, most of the people who are represented are black. You know, you, you have to look very far to find Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, Native Americans, uh, even the a Asian population that isn't represented well enough in publishing. You know, and you think, oh, well, why is this? Well, it's because people don't know how to find these people in themselves, in their hearts. They don't know how to find them. It's not that they don't know how to find them in the world. Um, and. We, the other thing is, is that, and it becomes more, more complex of a thing, you know, the issues, this is why we talk so much for so long, because we're not also looking for people to represent their cultural niche. You know, we're not saying, well, we would like a Mexican editor because, you know, we have a lot of, you know, 25,000 Mexican people buying books. So we had this Mexican editor editing books for Mexican people. We're not asking for that either. What we're saying is, is that we all people in America have a deep understanding of America and what America does and what it reaches toward. And because someone is black and they understand what black people's needs are, they also may understand a great uh, percentage of other kinds of people in America and what their needs are and what their things are. And to have people of different colors and different backgrounds and different nationalities up and down the halls, you have a lot more information. And so people can talk to each other. So we can start to have communication and we can start to change things. What we're doing is we're asking publishers to expand their horizon. At the same time, we're seeking to make environments more conducive to multicultural workers. And I, this is what Penn is doing. Uh, Penn is trying hard uh, by doing a lot of things, putting on this event and, and hopefully other events with, with uh, different kinds of people. Um, they're developing a mentoring program to help people who are just entering into the publishing world or wanting to enter into the publishing world. We're also trying to develop a, a support group where people can come together, you know, from all the different publishing houses and just talk, you know, once or twice uh, a month 
you know, and just talk about what's going on and network and, and, and have information going back and forth. We're also tr uh, creating a survey. I think we've already created it, but it's very hard, you know. It's a letter that we're sending out to all the major uh, publishing houses saying, who works for you? So, like, who's on your sales staff and who are your editors and who are your publishers and who are all these professional people there? And what are they, you know? Are they like us, or what are they like? And, and so we're going to do that. Uh, it's very hard to send a letter out. Every time we almost send out the letter, say, well, we found one more problem, <laughs> you know. Um, and I get very unhappy, but we're going to send it out sooner or later. And, uh, and sooner or later, we're going to find out this information, or we'll find out that people don't want to tell us that information. And, um, and finally, <clears throat> I want to say about this panel, about this meeting today, it's very important to me um, that, that people understand and know that this is not a literary uh, panel. It's not a, I mean, it's not about a literary topic. Uh, it's not abstract. It's not removed. It's not people who are up here who think they know more than people out there or who don't want to hear what you have to say. This is a work group, and we're all members of this group, and we all have to, to work together to make changes, to understand that changes want to be made. And to, and to put pressure where pressure is necessary, not necessarily bad pressure, not necessarily angry, but saying, well, we have to change our world. And, 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 that, and that's what it's about. So the panel is going to talk, and, it's gonna, and they're going to say things to you. But it's not like delivering papers that you can go home and say, God, you know, that wasn't very good. It's, it's more like we, we want uh, people to, to, to think and to, to become part of and to, to say things today and then later on to... To, you know, to get in touch with Penn and, and, and try to see how we can change things. Because this is really, and this is what's important, I think, you know, for the future of publishing. And also to include those people who have so much intelligence. You know, I, I, the final thing that I want to say is that, you know, when I studied writing, I studied uh, with uh, Bill Matthews at City College. He's a poet. And he taught me about poetry. And, uh, and I always figured, like, you know, that fiction writers should... Uh, should understand poetry because that's where the kind of the heart of, of writing is, and um, you know, poetry classes are kind of funny. You know, you always have somebody in there who comes in, they and they keep bringing the same poem, and they keep you know, and they keep asking the same thing. She says, you know, I remember there's a woman who had this poem, and, and she kept on calling. She's taught it was a poem to her boyfriend, and she kept on saying, she says, my love is your honey pot. You know, and it was like it was really. You didn't like listening to it. That was like one of the lines. You just didn't like it, and she kept on bringing it in every every week. And finally, finally one of the guys, you know, who's made very uncomfortable by this honeypot metaphor, <laughs> said, maybe you just shouldn't write this. <laughs> maybe you should just put this away, you know, in very forceful tones. And Bill, who never, ever interrupts, I don't know if anybody knows here Bill Matthews, but he's a very nice guy. He never interrupts. He's very sweet. He's very, like, erudite. And he said, well, and he stopped the class and he said, listen, he said, you can say anything you want to people in the class, and you can do anything you want, but the one thing that you can never ask for is silence. Mm -hmm. And we went on talking about that poem. But <laughs> the, idea, the idea, I think, is, is true. It's true that we can't ask other people for silence, and it's also true that it can't be asked of us. The publishing world in New York, the mainstream publishing world, controls the waves of, of cultural knowledge and information. We have to be part of that, because otherwise we are silent and powerless. Anyway, thank you very much. I hope that we have a good time.
is going to introduce me, I'll introduce myself. Uh, I'm John Baker, the Editorial Director of uh, Publishers Weekly, and uh, I have the great pleasure to be the moderator of this panel today. Uh, I have to say right from the start that uh, although a call for diversity is fine, I, I was not responsible for defining an aesthetic in publishing for the 21st century. It seemed to me that that was perhaps a little ambitious for uh, our poor heads along here, and so we'll, um, we'll restrict ourselves to a call for diversity and, uh, and why we feel it should be made. Walter has made a wonderfully eloquent statement of uh, the reason we're here, the reason we're gathered together and to talk about uh, the subject. Let me give you just a little background from uh, something we ran in the magazine a year or so ago. A recent report by the Census Bureau describes an American population that has already changed a great deal and by the year 2020 will have changed a great deal more. Hispanics will be the second largest minority overtaking African Americans and the white population will continue its decrease as a percentage of the population. Publishing, like every other American business, will be affected by these changes. It can mean more than a public relations disaster if uh, the makeup of the publishing workforce does not effectively reflect the market they serve. It can be a financial one as well. Speaking at the recent AAP annual meeting in Puerto Rico, that was uh, a year and a half ago now, Howard Hodgkinson of the Center for Demographic Policy of the Institute for Educational Leadership, sorry about that, characterized the situation this way. It's an interesting challenge, he said to the assembled publishers, for industries like your own, which is dominated, dominated by old, white, rich people, to figure out how to develop your new markets. Uh, I'd sort of quibble a bit at the old, uh, rich people, but white is sure as hell right. <laughs> Will an overwhelmingly white publishing industry remain a metaphorical house without doors, attracting neither minority workers to their employ nor minority audiences to their products. The, uh, the article went on eloquently to quote from a lot of uh, industry people who uh, discussed these angles to and fro and came up with some uh, interesting conclusions. I won't go any further into the, um, the piece at this point because I figure the, the panel here is very well uh, constituted to... Uh, cover the kind of points we covered in this piece. I would like to say, however, that um, at PW we're well aware, I think, of the enormous plus that it is to have a representative of, uh, of a minority in a prominent position in the magazine. We have Calvin Reed, a news editor who's sitting here in the front row, taking notes, I hope, for a possible story in the magazine. He wrote the piece last year. Nobody else on the staff could have written it with anything like the, uh, the intelligence and understanding of the issues that Calvin brought to it. Uh, constantly, uh, he makes us aware of stories about minority publishing developments, minority publishing people, things that are happening out there that we wouldn't have the faintest notion of without his presence. Uh, I think we're very lucky to have him, and I think uh, all publishing houses should have many Calvin Reeds uh, of a large number of uh, the minority groups, not 
obviously just African American, Native American, Hispanic, and Asian as well. Uh, these are all represented on our panel, in fact. And um, let me uh, take you briefly through who they are, and then we're going to launch right into a discussion. We do not have prepared speeches. We thought that would waste your time. Uh, we want to start hitting on the issues right away, and uh, let us talk for a little while, and then we will let you talk and, in fact, encourage you to talk. So reading from my, uh, my left and your right, Gerald Howard is an editor in the Trade Department of Norton. Uh, who, one of his authors, incidentally, is Walter Mosley, who has, alas, left us now. He was previously an executive editor at Viking Penguin, also worked in the Education Department, New American Library, and previously as a copywriter at Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. He's more than an editor, however. He's also a very skilled writer, and his essays and reviews have appeared in the American Scholar, the New York Times Book Review, The Nation, and the Hungry Mind Review, among other publications. He says he got his first job in publishing, which I'm sure is what a lot of you are interested in hearing about, through a referral from a friend he met playing basketball in the playground in Brooklyn in the early 70s. Joy Harjo is a poet and a musician of the Creole Nation in Oklahoma. Her most recent book of poetry is The Woman Who Fell from the Sky, uh, also published by Norton, and forthcoming is Spiral Memory for, in Don Hall's Poets on Poetry series. Uh, Reinventing the Enemy's Language, an anthology of Native American women's writing, also coming from Norton, and uh, A Love Supreme, a memoir. Joy lives in Albuquerque. Uh, she plays saxophone with her band, which is called Beautifully Poetic Justice, uh, and forthcoming they have a, a CD called Letter from the End of the 20th Century. You'll only be hearing her speak tonight, unfortunately, but let's hope that's enough. Manny Barron's involvement in publishing has run the spectrum. Uh, he, he began as the assistant manager of the Doubleday Bookshop in the South Street Seaport, though he hastens to add that uh, uh, his exit had nothing to do with its later demise. He also started the Black Interest Division at Golden Lee, a book distributor, and uh, was the buyer there, and uh, unfortunately they went bankrupt recently, and he had nothing to do with that either. <laughs> He's now been at Random House for almost three years, less a week. Uh, as their African-American specialist, he's the only sales rep in the industry who is regularly selling African-American bookstores. I think uh, many white publishers hardly believed there was such a thing until quite recently. He's also involved in the marketing and publicity of African-American titles. Is also the in-house rep for the Southwest region. Tracy Sherrod started three years ago at Henry Holt as an assistant editor. She is now an associate editor and has acquired nearly 20 books, including forthcoming Patricia Bell Scott's Flat-Footed Truths and Betty Collier Thomas's Over the Footlights, The History of African-American Theatre. Before Henry Holt, she worked with the Marie Brown Literary Agency, Essence Magazine, and at the Feminist Press. Noji Yamaguchi is associate editor in the adult trade division of Harcourt Brace and the author of a novel, Face of a Stranger, published by HarperCollins last June. After receiving degrees from Duke 
Johns Hopkins and the University of Virginia. He began working in publishing as an editorial assistant at Vintage in 1988. From 1990 to 1994, he was an assistant editor at Pantheon. In his free time, and uh, most of us publishing people don't get as much of that as we'd like, he is at work on a new novel and a play. Now, having introduced the, uh, the panel, let me kick off with a few of the things I think we should be talking about and um, ask the members of the panel to uh, kick off the fray right away. First, what sorts of difficulties are faced by professionals of color in an industry like publishing that is predominantly white? Any volunteers, or shall I nudge somebody and uh, get, them, get them right up there? Annie, you want to start on that one? OK. Um, I think one of the main, one of the main problems um, from being the only salesperson on this panel, and uh, that's either good or bad with all these editorial folks, um, what I had found was that there was a whole group of black bookstores that publishers were publishing to, and this was the audience that they were trying to get to, without reaching the, the, the market that they were targeted for. And this is, just, this is indicative of, I think, the general lack of direction that many publishers have when it comes to multiculturalism. They publish with something in mind and, and an audience in mind. However, they don't know how to reach it. It's almost like a, a field of dreams. If we build it, they will come. Well, if we publish it, they will read it. However, if it's not put where someone can get to it, then I think you've defeated the purpose. And I think that's, that basically is the main problem, is we don't, we in the publishing industry, have uh, a divided mind. We know we want to do this. However, we won't go through the steps, or we just don't know enough to follow through to get to what it is that we're trying to, uh, to achieve. Anybody um, have anything to add to that about the difficulties uh, you face within the industry? Oh, I'm scared you'd call on me, but <laughs> might as well get started, right? Get started. Jump um, in. <laughs> from an editorial standpoint, there's, um, I think, number one, I guess, at the top of my mind today is um, almost time, the way your time is spent during the day. Like, if you're in the editorial department, you're the only African-American person in the editorial department, when people have questions, and they do have a lot about, um, you know, the content of the book, the look of their book, if there happen to be, you know, other white editors doing African-American books in, in this particular situation, you know, it's a lot of your time, you know, invested in their books because they're asking you, do you think this cover will work? Do you think um, if, and one in particular I was thinking of was actually a word. Someone came and um, asked me, they said, um, they asked me about a word. Is this an African-American word or a black thing? She said, like this. And I said, looks like a typo to me. <laughs> and so, so you, <laughs> you know, so you, you just never, you, you never know. And then <laughs> another day you might have to go and talk to the receptionist who, the receptionist relief person who you had a visitor come up and they assumed they were the messenger. So you have to spend a couple minutes talking to her and explaining don't bring your issues to work. You know, <laughs> you know, don't, you know, ex 
you know, offend people. You know, you know what I'm what I'm saying. You have to give them a lesson in how to be a receptionist or whatever, and not assume that people are what whatever you may assume because of your background. So I I think part of the issues is that time, the way your time is spent, and then after end, end of that and all the emotional you know dealings of that, you have to turn around and do your work, and it's exhausting sometimes. And um, so I think there's those issues of time. There's issues of credibility. You know, if you're an African-American editor and you bring up an African-American book and everybody looks at you like, do you really think there's a market there? And would you have brought it up if you didn't? <laughs> you know, <laughs> just because you don't know that market, then you have to defend that. It's just, you know, completely, it's exhausting. It really is exhausting for me. Do, do you find and, somehow that you're uh, an example who has to keep proving yourself more than you would if you were uh, one of their standard white editors? Um, Do you feel on the spot a lot? <laughs> <laughs> like right now. You mean like now? <laughs> uh, yeah, like right, like now. Um, no, not necessarily on the spot, but I think sometimes you feel like, am I holding my tongue at this moment mm -hmm. when I should say something, or should should I have not said that? So not really on the spot. No, but I think there's a lot of internal issues that, as the only you know person in editorial that you have to deal with, and you know stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. So I think that with somebody, yeah. what Tracy just said, which is interesting, um, and she's right. If, if as an editor, a uh, an editor, let's say we're, as we're talking about an African American book, uh, a non, uh, an editor of of. Uh, Whiteness. I was going to say non-color. Well, <laughs> a white editor. <laughs> um, they'll pick up a piece and they'll bring it to you and go, "Gee, what do you think about this?" And as you are the only person of color around, it's going, "Okay, well, uh, I think this or that." And then you go, "Well, doesn't that tell you that you need to have more than just me here?" I mean, isn't that you're 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 putting out and taking back at the same time? And it's almost like they're saying, "Well, we've got one." So we can just just shuttle everything over to them without realizing that they're slapping themselves in the face every time they come over and over and over again to ask you questions like, well, what is the black perspective on this? Well, get some more black people in here. <laughs> Maybe you can get a quorum on this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yoji, what's been your experience in this? Um, well, I think that one of the main things one has to deal with uh, when one is in a somewhat isolated situation is uh, you're con constantly contending with um, all kinds of assumptions that would not be brought to bear otherwise. Um, sometimes they can be comical, sometimes they can be annoying, and sometimes they can be um, quite infuri infuriating. And it's not simply internal. I, don't, I mean, it doesn't happen simply within the office. I think it also... Um, I mean, I have the greatest respect for literary agents, but I think that they do um, make similar sorts of assumptions, um, targeting wholly unsuitable submissions to an editor simply by dint, by virtue of that editor's um, ethnic background. Uh, for instance, um, my first job when I was an assistant to Errol McDonald, we used to get the craziest submissions um, from agents simply because the author happened to be black. 
uh, and so did Errol. So, I mean, it's not, I mean, it is within the industry, but it's not simply within the publishing houses as well. I think it's, it's far more pervasive than that. And I think that um, the kind of hyper-consciousness that has developed in the country over this question um, has left everyone somewhat um, almost dysfunctional, I think. Um, that you, one cannot deal, uh, one cannot address an issue or a question without this matter of race coming into play. Joy, I wanted to uh, bring you into this discussion as an author. Obviously, you don't work inside any kind of corporate environment, but does the ethnic makeup of a publishing house make a difference to the author, do you think? Are you, are you more comfortable with some kinds of um, publishers than you would be with others? I don't know. I think it comes down to respect, and it's what um, he was talking of, just talking about. You know, people, you know, bottom line, if there's respect and people look at you and talk to you and deal with you as a human being, I think that's, you know, that's what matters. And I suppose some publishing houses have, uh, you know, reputations for not doing that and others for doing that. I won't name names. <laughs> but, but there is, uh, I have a lot I would like to talk mm. about, but there is, I don't know, there is this problem. And when I was given this, I thought, why am I on this? I'm the one person who's, certainly I deal with publishing, you know, as a published writer, I've dealt with publishers of all sorts. And I've been very furious at the publishing world, actually, because of, because of a lot of assumptions about Native people in this country. It's like, why, can't I, why do I see Pocahontas? Certainly Disney's to blame for, for that. But many of the books that I see, and I go around to bookstores, I travel all over, and I'm in Native communities in which there usually aren't very many bookstores, except you know, there are bookstores in the city and, and so on. But I see, as far as Indian writers and Native writers, I see almost nothing. About all I see are people like Lynn Andrews, who is not a Native woman. She's a white woman from Beverly Hills who made up stories about Indians, but she is the one that the publishers are often pushing as far as Native writing, okay? And publishing industry says, okay, well, she makes money. Well, why does she make money? How did she get out there in the first place? How did she get an audience in the first place? Why is it when I go to bookstores, her work will be up there as far as, you know, a native writer, and you won't see Leslie Silco or, you know, or Scott Momaday or James Welch? I mean, you see them more often, but you'll still see hers up there. Or you'll see ads in the paper, you know, in the newspapers when you look for book ads. Yeah, I don't... Of course, I never see any for poetry, or they're very small. <laughs> and, uh, but rarely do you see any kind of promotion, which is very important for distribution, of really, truly literary native writers at all. And I think, well, why is this? People will say that's what they want to buy. Well, why is it that America, does America really want to believe this myth? It's a very tragic, you know, it's a tragic myth of Pocahontas. Do they all want, is this what the public wants? Do they want us to be uh, shamans and mystical, uh, mystical people that uh, of long ago? You know, is that why Dances with Wolves and all these other movies end, 
you know, with the two white people in the movie getting out while the Calvary's coming up to destroy everybody, that's the American myth right there. That's, you know, the Western, and that it's the same, you know, it's the same story. You know, I think publishing has something to do with this, and I think publishing, you know, can also change, you know, it can change, can change that too. Do you, do you see it getting any better? I mean, right now, the, the Russell Means book is out there, and uh, Dee Brown has been a bestseller over the, over the years. Um, is there more recognition than there was? Well, there is certainly there is certainly a little more than there was, and there are a lot more people writing than there were. But there's still it still disturbs me when I go to the Prize Club. The other day, I went in there, and somebody was carrying out. This guy was putting in his cart this thing called the Indian Princess set, and I'm thinking, you know, we worked so hard to get rid of this, you know. And then the Indians and the Braves. I mean, you know, <laughs> we worked so hard. It's so hard to say, look, we're human beings, you know. We're not just Indians, we're Muscogee Creek Nation, we're this nation, we're this nation, we're different cultures, we're different languages, you know. And here it's still, we're still reduced to this, you know. We're still, there's still a reduction here, and why is that? Well, I have a lot of reasons, I know there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think, you know, again, I would like to see that addressed in the publishing industry. I mean, because there is, you know, I think that most pe human beings like a good story. And when we get around and tell stories, these stories are amazing of how people survived, of lives and deaths, details of people's families about how they survived, and f things that are just funny as hell. And you don't see any of that. By the time something gets to the screen, it's, there's nothing there. It's empty. You know, why aren't these stories? They're there. People are writing them. I've seen you know, manuscripts, I've seen things, and why, you know, what happens in that process from getting them here, you know, to there, instead of these other, this other stuff that's lies, this other stuff made of lies. Jerry, can we bring you in at this point and uh, ask, from your point of view, is it possible to publish the full range of material that that should be published if a house like yours is uh, is fairly uh, fairly white, to put it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's possible, but it's not going to be done in the way that it uh, should be done. I mean, one of the things uh, the thing about what the what the village boys called the unbearable whiteness of publishing. <laughs> Um, is is that uh, is that it in, it involves uh, a lot of ironies and uh, some of them are mildly amusing and and some of them are quite uh, painful and uh, I'll leave it up to you to decide which um, one one irony that strikes me when I think about this was that um, you know uh, you're never going to find a, a more liberal and sincere bunch of white folks. Uh, in this country than, uh, than are in publishing houses. I mean, they really want to do the right thing, or so they think they want to do. Now, uh, a f about a month ago or two months ago, Pete Wilson um, uh, you know, took the ax to uh, the affirmative action initiatives in the state of California. And um, all the very good liberal people, in white people in publishing, 
I'm sure, felt and probably said, well, what a terrible, terrible thing. I'm going to tell you, though, that if somebody proposed uh, an affirmative action initiative of the sort that uh, has been um, imposed for decades on, on universities and um, uh, um, you know, uh, law firms and, and, and large employers on, on the publishing industry, how far do you think you'd get? I mean, you say, well, but we're different. We, I mean, but you don't understand there's a culture of publishing and blah, 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 blah. And there'd be a lot of backing and filling, and um, there uh, will never be any affirmative action, um, I don't think, not especially in our, our current political climate, um, uh, initiatives in publishing, law, uh, legal, legal based uh, initiatives. Um, Another, another uncomfortable um, irony that, that I experience in, in my day-to-day um, -day editorial work um, uh, is, I mean, there's something that, that, that I call the culture of, of acquisition. And, and the fact of the matter is that in the, in the largely white editorial councils of the largely white um, uh, New York publishers, um, Books by people of color, and God, do I hate that phrase, but I can't come up with a, a better one at the moment, uh, get, get a, a very um, uh, respectful uh, hearing, or perhaps more than, more than uh, respectful hearing, because again, there's that painful sincerity that uh, people have that they, they want to uh, do the right thing. And, and there is also a nice, um, uh, cold um, financial gleam in the eye of a lot of the editors because they can think that they, they can sell. And yet, and yet the way that the, the editors uh, orient themselves, the white editors orient themselves to these books is, is skewed. It's off. I mean, I understand Manny's problem. But there's part of me that wants to ask for his direct line, you know? Um, I can I I um, I will give you I will give you an example um, of something that made me very uncomfortable. Uh, there was a novel that went around uh, town, um, Litville Publishingville, um, about two about three or four months ago. Uh, it was, um, the title of it was Precious Jones um, by Sapphire. Um, S A P P H I R E, no relation to William. You bet. <laughs> and um, it was. Uh, she's a black lesbian poet with with one um, somewhat notorious um, uh, collection of poems to her credit. And this novel was a completely unnerving uh, piece of work. It was, uh, it was about a young black woman, maybe uh, 15, 16, uh, had already had, I believe, two illegitimate children, uh, one of them by her father, um, and who was barely literate and completely institutionalized and um, uh, 
and not, not a very nice, uh, attractive character as she comes on, on the page. And it was raw, riveting, uh, difficult to disbelieve, and as I said, uh, I think for, especially for a white editor, uh, unnerving. It was, it was not submitted to me. Uh, it was, but I read it. It was submitted to another editor at Norton. And it, it brought up all sorts of uncomfortable feelings for me, one of which was, do we as white editors and mostly white publishers have the right to publish this book, which looked at from a certain point of view uh, validates some of the ugliest things that are said about black people uh, in, this, in this country. It was this, it felt like you were uh, juggling a live hand grenade, really. In the, in the event, um, in fact, Norton bid, um, Watford Norton was um, a substantial sum of money for this book, uh, and it was eventually acquired by, by Knopf for um, uh, an even more substantial sum of money. <laughs> and um, we will see, won't we? Watch, watch for this. This, this book is going to uh, land on the literary culture with something, I, I predicted was something of the force that um, Richard Wright's uh, native son did, and uh, I don't know, I do not know whether the effect of this book is going to be entirely salubrious. Um, I don't know if it's going to be a good thing. I could have used Manny Barron's direct line uh, at that point to uh, work out some of my feelings, and I really, to this day, do not know whether as, as a white editor and as white publishers, we uh, let me say, we have the right to uh, publish this sort of book. I don't know the answer to that question. And I think that, I think that reflects um, the racial divide that uh, is in the society and that all of us um, internalize within ourselves. So. Um, actually, I just wanted to comment on that point. Actually, I, I bid on that book, too, um, Jerry. And it's interesting to hear your interpretation of it. But I, on the other hand, found it very beautiful in the sense that this was the first time that we'd heard from this particular type of character who is very much an everyday sort of character in, in African-American inner cities. And I think her voice needs to be heard because I think um, people such as um, Precious in the book are people that are ignored and those are the people that we don't want to see and hear from. And I don't find it, you know, I think you kind of allude to it's a little pathological, but I, I didn't see that. I saw the beauty of what the character eventually did with her life. I found the book very empower, empowering because it was an everyday person, and I think, the, I think massive groups of people would love to hear from her. And I. This, this I, I hasten to add, was, was a, a powerfully uh, written book with all the virtues that Tracy um, um, cited. I am, I am just giving you a picture of what it felt like inside my head as I uh, tried to uh, orient myself to this book. 
Um, Jerry, could I ask a question? Would you have had the same reservations if the book were about a poor white woman um, with illegitimate children and uh, um, disenfranchised? Um, frankly, no. That sort of answers the question a bit, I think. Yeah, um, you know, there is... Uh, there's a, there's a lot of uh, white guilt working here that is sometimes <laughs> obviously appropriate and sometimes perhaps not. But the the exchange we just had, I think, illustrates better than anything else the uh, the need uh, which I want to pursue in the next uh, go round for getting more people like Tracy and Manny into publishing so that they can uh, they can make their voices heard and. Uh, and take people like poor Jerry off the horns of their dilemma. Um, <laughs> I, I prefer to, I'd like to stay on those horns. I think it's, com it's, it's about time we, uh, I mean, it's, it's a place where we should be on, on the horns of a dilemma, but, but it is indeed true that if there were um, more black faces in those editorial meetings, I think the issues raised by books like uh, like push as it's as it's called would be would be dealt with up front in um, a more intelligent and candid way and I'm all for intelligence and candor I think they're positive qualities <laughs> <laughs> Jerry mentioned um, the fact that uh, affirmative action as it's currently employed in a lot of other kinds of companies um, could do wonders for publishing, but that publishers would resist it. Would, um, would uh, people of color, in fact, uh, welcome more affirmative action in publishing? Manny, what do you think? I think one of the, uh, <clears throat> outside of just people of color, there's a certain mystique to publishing, that publishing has always tried to maintain and have, uh, have done everything that they could to feed it. Um, People go into bookstores and there's a book there. It's like there's some book fairy that comes at night and just puts books out there. So we have always uh, kept a lot, un until the past, uh, I would say within the past decade or so, um, we have always tried to keep that veil in front of everyone's eyes in regards to uh, publishing. So I think the first thing to do to get more people of color in is to open the doors and let folks know what goes on when a book is published. I mean, there are people, there are people that walk into stores um, that have been going in and of any color. I mean, we were was in a store in uh, the uh, uh, Brooklyn Heights area, and uh, a white gentleman came in looking for the new Michael Crichton book. And you, from looking at him and from the area that he was in, you're assuming this is someone who's been through bookstores before and has a general idea of what goes on. And he said, oh, I just heard about this book, the new Michael Crichton book, and it was presented to him in hardcover. And he said, do you have it in paperback? And I mean, we all know it's a no, a book comes in hardcover, then it goes to paperback. So there is, there is this mystery there. So I think we, that's the first thing we have to do, to let people know how books get published. And then they can make a decision to become involved in the process because all of us in this room that is involved in publishing realize this is something we do for love. It's not for money. So <laughs> to do that, it takes a certain amount of commitment to be involved in publishing. And the commitment comes from a drive, a desire, 
a love for the written word and wanting to be involved in the written word uh, and delivering it to people. So I think that's the first thing that we must do is just kind of open up our doors and let people see what's going on. And then they can begin making a conscious decision or at least begin the internal debate regarding publishing and whether it's something that suits them. John, can I address this question? Yeah, I was going to ask you. Yeah. Um, I think an affirmative action, pro- a formal effort, would have real trouble simply because I think you'd have real problem persuading um, minority candidates to come to a job that starts at around 16000 a year. Um, I think the reason that no formal, uh, one of the reasons that's cited that there's been no formal program of that type is publishers will say there has been no conscious effort to discriminate on the basis of race, and that may or may not be true. However, I think a, a better argument, a stronger argument could be made that, yes, there has been a somewhat conscious effort to exclude on the basis of economic class. I mean, I think that the question of diversity is not merely an issue of race, but an issue of class. Publishing has been always a province of the affluent. It has been controlled by the wealthy and continues to be controlled by the wealthy. And increasingly, um, it is being peopled exclusively by the wealthy. And given the demographics of this country and the economics of this country, that invariably translates into racial discrimination. So, um, yeah, it's true that for most people it's a labor of love, but it's very difficult to make that case to an assistant who's making 16000 a year watching um, middle management um, and upper management behaving as if they're on the boards of Fortune 500 companies when that is not the case. I mean, you have a real disparity. I mean, the, the sort of distribution of wealth, as it were, within the industry is um, almost futile in its um, disparity and uh, in, I mean, in the range of disparity. Isn't so, it the case too often that um, young um, white aspirants to uh, publishing jobs uh, are inevitably partly supported by their parents. You know, there's the old. I don't. Uh, well, I don't know if that's. I mean, I don't know if that's a rule, but not I mean, a rule. But it's I, fairly I, common, I think, among young people starting out that uh, they couldn't really make it on their own. Well, I don't know, but I mean, I, the people I see coming into the industry now, um, and regard not just white, not just white kids. Um, you know, I mean, I know uh, quite a few Asian American kids, but. Their life experiences are not like were not like mine, and I, I find I have very little in common with these people. Um, so, what am I saying? If you are a publisher and you're hiring new workers, um, if you go out and hire college students who all come from the same background, uh, namely well-to-do and um, they all share more or less the same assumptions and presumptions about their respective lots in life and about society in large. And uh, moreover, if they share the same interest in abiding by or preserving the present status quo, um, 
I wonder how much of a change will, or how much of an effect will the racial makeup of your staff be if they all are coming from more or less the same background? Will it really make a difference what color they are? John. I, I half agree and half um, disagree with what Yoji has to say. That uh, I, I disagree with this issue of um, uh, uh, this proposition that because the starting uh, salaries in publishing are low um, and uh, uh, minorities are not typically um, uh, subsidized by their parents that, 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 that uh, they will not enter publishing. Um, I, I, think, I think that that can function as an excuse not to try. And, um, but but that's, this brings us to the question of class and race, which I, which I think is a shrewd observation. Um, I'll tell the story I, about myself. I, I, I come from a part of Brooklyn that you occasionally read about in the B section of the Times, very occasionally. And although I did um, go to an Ivy League college and um, came back to New York in 1972, um, I, you know, I had no connections. And really, I was clueless before Alicia Silverstone was born. And uh, here was my tech. And I said, well, I'm graduated. It's terrible. I have to get a job. Well, let's go into publishing. And here was my, my brilliant tactic uh, to find a job in publishing was to look in the yellow pages and get myself a walking tour uh, through Manhattan so I could drop in and interview and say, well, I'd like to be an editor. And I remember going to Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux and being absolutely appalled by their, um, by their um, uh, lobby, if I could call it that. Um, the, uh, the result of this brilliant strategy was that my first job after college was, was with an advertising agency in uh, Newark, New Jersey. And uh, it was only through a fortuitous um, um, conversation on a basketball court that I, I got a job uh, at, at Harcourt. It was very strange. But I always played it through in my head when I have to... Um, hire an assistant, and it, it, the whole thing is so hardwired. Um, I, I don't even have to say a word, and resumes start arriving on my desk, and they are from the Seven Sisters and the Ivy uh, Leagues and from uh, the public Ivies and, um, and from graduates of the Radcliffe uh, course, and, and hey, guess what? Um, most of those resumes come from from white um, applicants, and I think it's an incre the the culture of hiring in publishing is an incredibly closed circle that uh, that that needs to be broken, uh, that has to be broken if we're going to get anywhere. And and I have uh, some. At least one idea on on that um, subject that I'd like to propose later as we, as we get on, but uh, but it is connected to class as well, and and I think I think we need to recognize that, uh, or we're not going to get anywhere. 
Um, if I might add an anecdote, just to sort of highlight that. Uh, when I started working at Random House, um, my, while I was in still in school, I called, cold called the uh, personnel department, and, and the um, assistant who took those calls was quite courteous. You know, I simply said, I'd like to know how I go about applying for an entry-level job. And she told me more or less. And then when I arrived at Random House a few months you know, later and I began working, I became acquainted with this assistant and we became quite good friends. So one day as a joke, I called her and disguised my voice in her kind of Sylvester Stallone sort of, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'd like a publishing job. I'd like to get a job in publishing. What do I do? And the difference in her demeanor was startling. I mean, this is not a, I mean she's not a bad person. I, I thought the world of her, but her response to me talking like this was markedly different than when I originally called her. And that is not, I mean, it's not some, that is not, stat, I mean, that's not policy. That is not explicit. But um, it is part of what Jerry referred to as the culture of hiring within the business. And that, 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 that goes beyond race. That, I mean, that is... Um, I mean, therein lies the ex a lot of the exclusion. Yeah, I agree. I mean, publishing is um, is a small industry to begin with, and it, I mean, it borders on incestuousness um, because there's only but so many places that you can go to. Everyone knows everybody. Word gets out. So it's not an open-door policy uh, in terms of hiring, no matter who we're talking about, whether we're talking about uh, ethnicities, whether we're talking about genders. It is very much a closed door. I mean, publishing hasn't changed that much since Gutenberg. Have the uh, various publishing courses made any difference? I mean, a number of uh, places like Radcliffe and Denver and Stanford actually run hands-on publishing courses that graduate students. Uh, I don't know if any of you came out of those. But look at the names that you just said. Yeah, and they cost a fortune. That's, that's the whole yeah. point, is that it is such, I mean, everything is so self-contained, and, mm. and it, everyone seems to work on the same premise, is that, shh, let's not tell anybody. And that's why jobs are not posted. I think the reason why um, the publishing house isn't very diverse is because, number one, the jobs aren't posted. Number two, I don't think that it's the salaries that keep um, African Americans or Asians or anybody else from the jobs. And it's the, um, I mean, you're, I mean, let's face it, the opportunities for advancement for an entry level employee in the publishing industry are dim. Um, I mean the turnover. The turnover rate. I mean, if someone were to do a, a survey of the turnover rates of publishing houses, I think you'd find the results quite startling. Um, how long people stay at the entry level? I mean, how many people make it and how many people leave after six months to go to law school? Um, and insofar as um, people who are not coming from that privileged background are concerned with advancement, publishing is not the place to go. Um, if you want to get, if you um, say a scholarship student you know, at a state university who wants um, to make a go of it, 
Um, I'm, I mean, if I were to advise that person, I'm not sure I'd tell them to go into publishing. I might say, you know, well, you got, you, I mean, you're, you've got excellent grades, um, excellent recommendations. Why you, you know, why go to publishing? Go into, go to medicine, go to law school. Um, and also, I think also too, <sighs> I'm talking too much. Um, I think that the publishing industry is becoming, runs the risk, is running the risk of becoming irrelevant to society at large, to the, to the um, cultural debate. And for people who, people with passion, people with ambition, people with intelligence, people with talent who happen to be of color, um, they may see the industry as this incestuous sort of self-contained cottage industry and conclude that their energies can be put to better use elsewhere. So I think that it's, I mean, rather than simply filling up the seats, as we said, is, is, is simply not enough. I think we have to really think about, um, I mean, the, the lack of diversity is merely a symptom, I think, of a larger problem. Hmm. What we're saying, I guess, is that uh, it's not so much that people need publishing, but that publishing needs them. Yeah. And the question is, how, how do we set about trying to get them better. I mean, we've already talked about educating them more about the, uh, the publishing process. Um, would more recruitment on, uh, on campuses help more informed recruiters? Is that where we should be going? The trouble is publishing is sort of spoiled by the fact that it doesn't have to recruit. There are more people knocking down its doors than it could ever absorb in any case. So what, where's the motivation? Um, do you see any possible uh, ways of improving the kind of people we get in? Yes, the variety I do. of the kind of people? Yes, I do. Ah, this is where your suggestion comes from. Um, <laughs> I, I, would, I have suggested this. At, 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 uh, I'm, I'm one of the people who occasionally shows up at the Open Book Committee. And uh, I've suggested this on a couple of occasions. But... Uh, and I think it's an extension of the of the mentoring uh, program. But what I think would make a world of difference if would be if there were an informal kind of standing visiting committee among uh, people of all races and colors in publishing, and that includes white people, and including people from all. Um, the various departments in publishing, and I'm not just talking about editorial, but uh, sales, production, and marketing. Um, a group of people who would stand ready to uh, go out of town to universities, maybe not on their own nickel, maybe there would be foundation support for something like that, maybe it would come from the university, and to simply uh, explain to African-American student groups, to Asian-American student groups uh, at, um, at um, the larger colleges or visit black colleges uh, and be there to explain what publishing is about since publishing is so self-enclosed that it doesn't bother to explain itself very much to uh, the people outside those invisible walls. The second part of a function 
of a visiting committee is to, is to take the phone calls from the student, from the contacts that might be made um, on these, on these uh, visits so that when a student, to take an example from uh, Howard University, a hypothetical example, um, comes to town, that they have a list of people that they can call first or maybe before they come and say, I'm sending you my resume. Will you, will you speak to me? Because, um, because, of, because possibly because of the sh sheer brilliance with which I went about getting uh, my first job in publishing, um, uh, I'm, I'm um, sympathetic to people who sort of cold call. And what I always say uh, when, they, when they come uh, after, I say, well, I can't do very much for you because I, don't, I only um, work with one assistant. But beyond that, I say that, that um, getting a job in publishing is almost uh, a function of times at bat. How many, how many of being in motion, of, of uh, being in the right office at the right time, but if you can't get to bat, if you can't get even get even even get into the mm -hmm. goddamn ballpark, you know you're not going to get anywhere. And the function of a visit of a, of this uh, committee um, that I am proposing would be to allow for that kind of brownian motion that uh, leads to uh, job interviews and and eventually job offers. I don't think it'd be very hard for a lot of people to do. I don't think it'd take a huge amount of time for people who are concerned, and I think it would make a hell of a lot of difference. There is a um, committee supposed to be looking into ways to improve publishing diversity at the AAP. Uh, have you ever found them of any use, or uh, have you even pitched it to them? No, but I'd be willing to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh. It was dissolved, wasn't it? You're right. Yeah. There's yeah. my excuse. <laughs> yes, the general publishing division was reshaped and the diversity committee disappeared. Good point. Um, <coughs> Has it been brought up at Norton? Because I don't think there are any editors of color at Norton. But. No, there are not. Did you, bring, did you bring up your idea? Say what? Did you bring up your idea there? No. No. <laughs> no, I don't know. But it's, I'm saying industry-wide. Yeah. No, I agree. We shall, in any case, have uh, you know um, a, a news account of the proceedings uh, appearing in PW, and I hope that uh, other people will uh, take heed of, uh, of Jerry's suggestion. Um, I'd like to. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of people here who have things they'd like to say from the floor, questions they'd mm -hmm. like to ask, and uh, I'd like to um, throw it open to them. At this point, we've been. Uh, talking after uh, Walter finished for an hour now. There is a roving mic, uh, and it helps us hear what you're asking if, um, if you can call for the mic. I think the man in the middle towards the back has had his hand up for quite a while, and even before we could uh, start the question. So let's, uh, there we go. Okay. It always takes a while to do, which is why people get discouraged, but it's better if you can hear both the question and the replies. Yes? Turn the mic on. Is it on? <laughs> okay. Just a quick response. We still haven't answered why 
we then involve ourselves in publishing. If it's not the $16,000 a year, uh, why then? And I propose that there's an emotional reason. If it's $16,000 a year, then it can only be one thing. I must be a keeper of the gate, you see. And, and that is the buy-in for me. I get to create the images that my children see, the images that perpetuate what I do and what I hope my children would do, will do. So I should not have to come to a white publisher to ask them, please, let me create the images that look like me. To the victor belongs the spoils. You should be free, or white publishing should be free to create those images which project itself. Project itself. By the same token, I as an African male have the responsibility to create the images that project myself and project to my children that which I would want them to be. As an Asian male, as a Native American female, we too, you have the same responsibility. So uh, that's where I think the answer lies. I don't know that we can ask white publishing to let us in. To what? To create images that look like them or look like us. There's a conflict therein. And that question should not be asked. Uh, what we should do is just meet the responsibility of creating our images for ourselves. That way, we all benefit. As a nation, we benefit. Thank That's you. my comment. That's a, it's a very good point indeed. And one of the things that uh, we haven't really mentioned up here at all, uh, because we've been so busy talking about di diversifying the existing white structure, is that um, simply because they felt they were being neglected, uh, large numbers of uh, minority people um, particularly African-Americans and uh, Hispanic-Americans, have in fact established their own publishing operations, even their own distributors and bookstores. Um, it's a common belief, I think, among all too many white publishers that uh, minority people simply don't read. They're interested in other things. They're into music. They're into fast cars. Whatever it is, they don't read. And um, the, uh, I think the... Um, black structure that has been growing up in the last few years it gives the light of that clearly they have established their own publishing houses, their own bookstores and uh, they are doing exactly what the, uh, the questioner suggested um, there's a limit of course to uh, how far they can get in the existing uh, enormous structure, I mean they can't hope for multi-million sales because the uh, the structure isn't sufficiently powerful to allow for that. Why not? But it is something that they can work on on a smaller scale. Why not? Why not? <laughs> um, Amistad Press seems to be doing quite nicely, and I believe they're a subsidiary of Warner, which is right. as big as it gets. And there's One World, which is part of Rand. Valentine, right. Right. So, um, I mean, I don't think that, I don't, cons I mean, African-American on publishing houses, are, I, I don't think you can regard them as niche publishing anymore. I think it's, I think it's gone way beyond that. Okay. Yeah, okay, there are, there are lots more hands up. I can see in the corner there, yeah. Right next to the mic. Earlier on in the discussion, Ms. Sherrod made a statement about being asked, she being the only black editor in a publishing house, and being asked questions, how exhausting it can be. 
it is exhausting, but I think it's a, a sacrifice that we have to make. I would prefer that an editor or a vice president of marketing or whoever come and ask me. And the problem is those general assumptions, always assuming. If you don't have any black friends or, uh, or black associates, you don't know. It's called ignorance. And to cure that, you ask those questions. It's hard. It can be exhausting, you know, taking care of your day-to-day -day job, whatever have you. But I would prefer that you ask. Mm -hmm. And I would, and, and going along with what this gentleman is saying, as I was saying earlier, the fact that, yeah, it is tiring, uh, but you do prefer being asked a multitude of questions and not being asked. But the only problem is in what as they walk away that you keep slapping yourself on the forehead and as you can see how many times I slap myself in the head um, <laughs> it's because you're saying well why you keep coming to me because I'm the only one here so doesn't this say to you that you need to open it up a little more that you do have needs that you're, you're admitting that the white publishing houses are admitting that they don't know everything which is the first step but they won't take the next step, which is to say, let's bring more people in because we definitely have a deficiency here. And there are questions and there are questions. I mean, some questions are cogent and intelligent, and some questions um, make you slap your fore make you slap yourself <laughs> in the forehead. Um, I remember one incident, an editor, another editor went away on a vacation. She had a number of houseplants in her office. She called her assistant and inquired about the health of those houseplants. Um, the assistant had no idea, not being of a, possessed of a green thumb, to which the editor replied, well, ask Yoji. I'm sure he'll know what to do. Um, when this message was relayed to me, I informed the assistant that um, it, was a, it would seem that her uh, a boss had mistaken me for another Japanese gardener. <laughs> she should inquire elsewhere. But I think um, part of the exhaustion is on one hand, when they're working on a book, they want you, they ask you 29,000 questions about everything. Then the contradictory part is that the next day you bring up a book and they question whether or not there's a market or whether or not we should do it. All of a sudden, you're not the expert anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the aggravating and exhausting part of it. I think it's important the questions are asked. Recently, Greg Saris, who's uh, from a California tribe, had a book published. and. Apparently, they brought in two book covers that the artist had already done, both with stereotypical images. And nobody asked him. He got a choice between the two. And he said, well, I don't like either one of them because they have really nothing. They're stereotypical, and they're really not of the book. But he didn't have a choice. You know, he didn't get asked. It was one or the other. So I think it's important you know, that at least somebody asks, you know, asks mm -hmm. the question. As an author, how, how responsive have you found your publishers to your own suggestions as to the way you wanted your work handled and, uh, and sold? Well, poetry, <laughs> you know, yeah. poetry is a particular market, and I think that there's really, some people will say there's no market for poetry, but I don't believe that's true. And I think part of it has to do with people, I think if there is, if people treat it differently, then certainly there is. I, I have, I've gone through, I've, Norton has done really wonderful for my book, my book of poetry, The Woman Who Fell from the Sky, and I got to help choose, you know, the art and the cover and so on. And I've, other publishers I've had, I've had to fight, you know, really, you know, fight very hard to get what I've wanted, and um, I have other stories, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Uh, yes, with the in the blue. Right here. Um, and other individuals who are in positions of hiring who are the ones who field resumes that come to their desk. Um, for example, I've gone through the Human Resources Department, and Human Resources, um, not to slight any individuals, but typically they're trying to pigeonhole individuals into certain positions. And one, if you are a black face, Asian face, whatever it may be, you know, they don't even look at your face necessarily, they just look at your resume and pigeonhole you. And it is usually who you know. Once you know someone inside the editorial department, then you have a way in. And that's another reason, that's one way to groom more people is by, for example, um, Manny and um, any other individual on the panel who happens to be in color, or not even on the panel, but who are in a position to recommend someone for a hiring position. If you are a person of color, then people will gravitate to you and seek out an opportunity to be hired through you. You may not be the hiring individual, but someone else might be. And that's why I said this panel, not, not to slight you, but you may not be the right panel because you can't, you know, all of you are in hiring positions and, um, you know, those people who are looking to hire may not see the faces of color that are here, even though they may have positions to fill. Yeah. I see where you're coming from. You know, in other words, we're not sort of highly enough placed to make a big difference. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> you're right, but I mean, what you said, I think, bears out um, Jerry's notion of, uh, of mentoring. Uh, if, if people who are high up uh, can take it as part of their responsibility to try and uh, encourage more people like yourself to apply and... Uh, pursue it, then uh, it could get somewhere. Yeah. Um, goodness, so many. Hmm? Yeah. Hello. Um, I want to ask a question, uh, but I'd like to uh, say that um, I represent an organization of women, founded by women, who for over 15 years have been answering the call of men and women of color, African-American and other uh, nationalities um, for jobs in publishing. They graduate from law school and they want a job in publishing. They make sacrifices so that they can work for $16,000 a year. So please don't perpetuate the myth that economics would be a hindrance to someone who really wants to work in publishing. I'm telling you I have the enviable position of giving leads daily to people who want to work in publishing. So I know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about scores of people, and I'm a 30-year veteran in this industry. So I, I, I just don't want that myth to get out there. That would be any limitation. And in terms of affirmative action, that's a game of numbers. What happens after you get the numbers into the publishing house? Where are the opportunities for uh, career growth? And that's what I would like to ask. Do you really understand what diversity means? 
Do you know what it means to plan for and manage a diversity initiative? It talks a lot more about valuing the perspective of the people that you already have on staff, whether they be editors or lesser than that. Now, I want to ask a question, and I know it may be embarrassing, but it needs to be asked. There are two parties involved here. There is the highly respected and highly regarded Bible of the publishing industry, Publishers Weekly, a publication that I have valued for years. And I said I was a 30-year veteran in this industry. And there is a publishing house who has produced a product for the African-American market, specifically for the African-American market, that they have done very well with. An author of color was the author, so there you would tend to think that there would be some authenticity to the character in the book. And there were dolls created, and it went on and on and on and on. And on the current issue of the Publishers Weekly edition I'm talking about, the publisher bought the cover and announced the line. The line is Pleasant Company's American Girl. And what is presented as the American Girl? What is presented as the American Girl? This is the image that Max Rodriguez, the publisher of Quarterly Black Review of Books, is talking about in terms of being able to present our own image. But in the meantime, we have the people who control the industry we have the people who are influenced by Publishers Weekly. So when they see a cover that says Pleasant Company for American Girls and they see this face, that is insensitivity. I don't believe it's deliberate. I don't believe that there's some scheme out here to keep the myth of white supremacy. I don't believe that. If I believed that, it would be a hopeless situation, and I wouldn't be able to do anything about it. But if I can bring it to the attention of the decision makers to say, you need to have some diverse perspective in your marketing. And when you select a, a, a cover or in your, your publishing sends a cover that says they want to buy the cover for this issue and this is the picture that they want to use, you need to have a marketing person that says, I think you want to look at what that says about who the American girl is. <laughs> we, we, we see, but, you, but, but what I'm saying is the dialogue that went on between Jerry and Terry was so insightful about that book. We got the kind of diversity of perspective that's needed for decision making. Yeah. That is the benefit of a diverse professional staff. And do you understand the benefits on the bottom line? You know, I would call for a boycott of Pleasant Company's product because of this. That's what I would call for. But I got another opinion about it. No, let's write hundreds of letters to Publishers Weekly just to bring this kind of thing to their attention. I remember the article that you published that Calvin did such a superior job. Who was on the cover of that issue? Dolly Parton. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was insensitivity. It couldn't be deliberate. I don't believe it was deliberate. I refuse to believe that. I just believe that it needs to be brought to your attention, and I'm glad you were here tonight so that I could do that. Thank you.
a lot of us at PW aren't always happy about the uh, the ads, and I uh, I have to stress that these are paid ads that appear on the cover. Uh, that's not the only one that uh, we weren't happy about, but uh, that's another story. Um, you're right; it should be taken up with the companies involved, and uh, I will, in fact, in the in this context, uh, you know, suggest that if they're going to take the cover, they should. Uh, and make a generalized claim like American Girl makes. After all, I think, uh, you know, children's publishing has increased, to, improved to the extent when it shows a playground full of kids. Usually these days they're not all white kids necessarily, so I think American Girl could probably do the same. Um, there are other questions there. Yes, uh, in, in the middle back there. Yeah. Can you get to her with the mic? You can, you can either yell or wait for the mic. There it comes. Okay, is yeah, that okay? Right, I know. Um, asking questions is, is nervous making, or comments. Um, I guess it's hard for, for me to hear a lot ab about this issue of... Um, I guess I don't buy the issue of, um, you know, bring in a woman, bring in a black person, bring in a, a this person or a that person, a little bit of what Joy was saying about, um, you know, categories of identity. I have a hard time hearing that. I agree with what the first gentleman spoke about, about how you can't, going, trying to diversify uh, this white institution is not necessarily the way to go. Um, I think that people who happen to be, to use somebody's phrase, people of color, should be given an opportunity to work in publishing because they're people who want to work in publishing, not because they're people who also happen to be people of color. I'm not sure that a black person who had an affluent background would necessarily be able to relate to the book that Jerry was struggling with. And I agree with Yoji that, you know, this, there's a lot, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, there's a tremendous class-based foundation in much of what we're talking about. And I think what happened in the record, what seems to have happened in the recording industry over the last five or ten years, particularly it seems in relation to rap music, that a lot of black labels rose up, you know, to handle that market, um, you know, relying, you know, relying on the corporate relying on the parent companies of publishing houses to be willing to project through their product, whether it's books or records or films, a vision of America that is not really predominantly white, I think is, is a dream. I think it's unfortunately still a dream. And unfortunately, I think it's, it's just going to stay a non-reality for a while to come. Could, could you pass the, the mic to the guy behind you holding up his hand? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I want to make a comment. Uh, the e editor from Harcourt Brace, Mr. Yamaguchi, made a, a very important point just at the end. No, the African-American market is no longer a niche. It's, it's very large now. And I don't remember the, the date. Perhaps somebody in the audience can tell me when Terry McMillan published Waiting to Exhale. Does anyone remember? 1988. Okay, very short. 89, I think. 89? Yeah. Within a few months after. 92, I 
I'm, I'm three certain, years ago, it, I'm it, certain it was 1992. Yeah, I think yeah. in yeah. the spring. May 92, a gentleman says. Within a few months of that, the New York Times interviewed her in its Sunday magazine. And the, it struck me, and I've never forgotten that article, because in it, Macmillan stated that the publisher was not doing very much to push her book. So she had to get out there and promote it herself. And once she did that, with her own efforts, uh, she found, a, she created a large market. And suddenly, the publishing industry woke up and said, aha. And I, 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 I don't think that that issue should be taken lightly at all. Um, I, I think part of this discussion um, needs to go back to the, the issue, not just of for hiring for the sake of hiring a minority, but keeping in mind it's done because the book buying public is comprised of minorities who read. I mean, mm -hmm. white America seems not to believe that black America reads. Now, that's a, mm -hmm. a, a racist thing. That's a, a generalization. But I'm a writer, and I travel around the world, and I discover that silly notion um, in, in many encounters, and, and I'm sure other people here could, could support that. But that's all I want to say. Thank you. I agree Thank you. with the I, what, what the gentleman was saying is that we and Terry McMillan, for better or for worse, did open up the doors for uh, so many black writers. But more importantly, it opened the eyes of white publishers. It was it was an alarm clock going off, and it was everyone. It was saying, "Wake up." and see what's going on, smell the coffee. However, so many of the major publishing houses, I think, still think of that as being a fluke. So what do they do? They publish all kinds of Terry McMillan-esque titles with Terry McMillan-esque covers, and the basis is still the same. But the, now the flip side of that is that's also publishing. Publishing is so much about formats. Um, as a salesperson... How do we sell a book? We sell a book to a bookstore by saying, well, this is like that book. And this one is, this author writes like so-and-so. So it's all about comparison. So this is the nature of the beast itself. But I, I mean, it is, Terry McMillan is a, basically an avatar of everything going on. But the white publishing, the mainstream publishers are still not agreeing and not seeing that this is what's going on. And which carries over to the amount of people of color that are then hired and are involved in the publishing industry because they're figuring, well, we don't need them. Yes. Um, I just wanted to go back to the issue of class because we've been volleying, volleying around the word class a lot this evening and yet, when we get back into how to fix the argument, how, how to fix the publishing industry, how to fix what's published, we go back into a discussion of race. When we say diversity, we seem to inherently be talking about diversity in race. If we're really going to branch out, I don't know the panelist's name on the end, but as he spoke about branching out in class, then we need to address the ways in which we recruit. We need to address the resumes that are seriously considered and entertained on people's desks. Everyone does not have the ability to go to college, and yet those people may still well have the ability to accomplish these jobs very, very well. I also just wanted to comment on um, Gerald Howard on the end. 
talking about his reaction to Sapphire's book, and you asked him if it was strictly based upon if, if it had been a white person, would he have felt differently? And what was interesting to me is that that same thing happened with Dorothy Allison's book, Bastard Out of North Carolina, which is also a class issue. This is a white woman saying, this is my experience, and this is my voice. And that's really important, too, because I think what happens in the whole class picture of a lot of times is that we take these authentic stories and experiences that Joy Harjo was talking about earlier, and I hope I didn't mispronounce your name, but we take these incredible stories, and sometimes out of sheer frustration for the publishing industry that's presented before us, we start kind of molding it into this more academic, more reserved, more this certain format, as he spoke of before, that we're familiar with and we know is acceptable to them. And we really need to start addressing class so that these authentic, which is not to suggest that you have to be poor to tell a real story. It certainly is not. But at the same time, there are different forms and structures and patterns and, and ways that people say things that need to be accepted and published. I, I can... I would, I would like to say something... Uh, to that, uh, one of the most uh, angering magazine articles I have ever read in my life was published about a year ago in New York Magazine. And it was uh, titled, uh, the cover article was titled, White Trash Nation. And the uh, general theory proposed by this article is that there are a bunch of really extreme white people out there, outside, so outside the gated city of, of, of New York, who live in trailer parks, and most of whom look like Tonya Harding and her husband. And um, if you look a little east, there's Joey Buttafuoco. But they're really, they're really trashy people, you know? And they're, and, and they're taking over our culture and uh, really lowering the tone of the proceedings overall. And I thought, oh man, um, is is this is this the way that the that that the working class, uh, the white working class, looks to uh, the media elite in New York? And then you go on, and there was also an article about uh, the makers of Beavis and Butthead, and and how people in colleges were saying, well, we're the we like to laugh at them because they're not us, you know. And and this this sort of uh, elitism uh, towards um, the average American, let's call let's let's call it, just drives me nuts. And 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 if there was a habit that I could expunge from uh, from the um, uh, the aggregate media elite, it is to think badly of working people. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. And, um, and I think it's connected to, to the problems that we're talking about in the publishing industry. Yes. What I find that publishers believe for some reason is that all black people are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. We have the same ideas, we live in the same neighborhood, we have the same culture. Um, and when there is something that happens, you are the only person that can speak about, quote unquote, black America, 
which is right. nonsense. Um, my second, my question is, however, is when someone comes and actually gets a job in publishing, then you have the problem of promotion and recruitment. How do you decide who gets promoted and who's going to stay? I mean, because if you're going to work for $16,000, it's because you love it and you want to do it, but you don't want to work for $16,000 for 10 years. And, and how are people of color going to ever get into the decision-making positions if we're not ever promoted? So yeah. I'd like the panel to like, address that in some way. Okay, yeah. Um, Yoji, let's go on along the whole panel on that one, because it's a good point. Well, unfortunately, the whole, I, think, I think it's true for the industry at large that careers are it's not nearly quite as scientific or systematic or as as one would think, um, I would. I mean, I think decision. The, the very phrase "decision" may be a bit flattering to describe what actually goes on <laughs> when someone's title changes. I mean, whimsy or capri um, is perhaps closer to it. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know how that can be changed. Because the fact of the matter is, it's tough for everybody to advance in publishing. Um, publishing is very close, probably closer than most industries, to um, what we have in the university, which is a system of tenure. Um, the glass ceiling is very much in existence for everybody. And, um, so, it, I, I mean, I really, I mean, I, I think that there's no one way, there's no way to break that ceiling that I can see, you know, uh, for the entire industry. I mean, I think at, at the moment, it's all a matter of personal initiative and not a little bit of luck. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree with Yogi that there really isn't a formula to it, but I think in certain departments you move a lot faster than you do in other departments, say marketing or publicity, a lot faster than editorial. But but then again, in editorial, if if at an assistant level you can acquire books, then there's only a certain point where they have to where the, they cannot promote you. I mean, because you rest on your merits, the sales of your books, and so or. And if they decide not to promote you, surely someone else will call you up and ask you to come over if you're doing that kind of work. So I, I think it, it has a lot to do with, um, you know, personal initiative and commitment. You know, am I going to stick this out and, you know, continue to, you know, to wait for the promotion? Because it is slow in, in publishing. And unfortunately, it's definitely slow. unfortunately um, the management, the people who do make the decisions at the moment, it is not in their interest to encourage their junior staff to advance because what they're mainly concerned with is keeping them interested in their present jobs so they don't leave and then you have to go and hire somebody else. Um, so, I mean, it's, if I were, I mean, the, I think the one thing that one needs more than anything is self-reliance. I mean, you cannot expect the industry to 
throw you a hand. You really have to um, propel yourself. I mean, at, as it is presently constituted. Maybe it'll change in the future. I don't know, but I don't see it. I agree. It's, um, it truly is about uh, initiative and goes back to a word that I kind of started everything with, which is passion. Um, the position that I have, I created it. I wasn't hired for it. Uh, once I got there and just saw what was going on around me, then I just basically you know, broke into the tool shed and grabbed my own pick and shovel and started digging myself because no one, and there was no instructions, there was nobody for me to talk to about it because this was just something that I said I wanted to do. So it, um, and that applies to anyone, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their gender, no matter what their sexual persuasion is. It's about what you want to do and the passion and how much, how much time are you willing to invest. Um, there's a certain amount we all have our own little timetables that we would like to live by, but I think in publishing, uh, more so than maybe any industry, it's, it really is uh, it's up in the air. And it's about how much do you want to put up with? How long do you want to wait? Do you want it now? Um, you know, is it an immediate need or is this down the road need? These are all questions that anyone who is going into publishing has to ask themselves if they plan to stay in it for any amount of time. I, I have one brief comment on, on that, and that is simply that uh, the money that's being spent in publishing, it seems to me, is often being um, being spent in the wrong directions. Unlike some industries, oddly enough, it's it's um, not going overwhelmingly to the uh, the people at the top. In fact, uh, top publishing executives are rather poorly paid compared to the uh, senior executives in uh, in uh, any large industrial corporation that you can even think of. Uh, what I mean is I think that it's something authors often complain about, that uh, the enormously high advances for a handful of, uh, of works that they think have mass appeal are uh, knocking out all the, um, what we call the mid-list or um, uh, less highly regarded or paid or promoted authors. Uh, to the same extent, obviously, they're, they're keeping down the, uh, the salary levels of everybody in publishing who might perhaps be uh, publishing more and better books more actively if all the money and attention wasn't being poured into the handful of books at the top. So uh, that's my contribution for what it's worth. Um, I think we're going to have to uh, wrap this up fairly soon, but we'll take um, a couple more questions because we really have to finish in another seven or eight minutes. At the back is the other one. Yeah, at the back. Wrong one. I don't need a mic, but I'll use it. <laughs> um, I think the n number one thing that's so important within publishing is the, the comment that was made earlier as much as you might not always have people of color in editorial assistant positions or editorial positions, but we are alive and well in other departments. And I think the irony of the book that flew from Norton to you to, you know, another house is that I read that book when I was at Norton, and it was given to me um, in the way of another assistant. We got crazy over this book. We were so ecstatic about this book. No one came back to hear our opinion about this book before we bid it on this book. 
And that happens one too many times. Now, I'm not to, uh, you know, make his feathers shine any more brightly, but Jerry's very good about that in giving books out to people to see what you do think about it. And I really respect that because he listens. I can go into his office and say, hey, I think this book's great. Hey, actually, I don't have, you know, I'm not so, so thrilled about this book. So little people actually listen, though, to your response. And I don't know if it's intimidation or they have this sense they have no understanding of what you're actually trying to convey or where you're coming from. And I think that has to change. Um, and getting material out to us, listening to us, no matter what department we're from, whether re the reception is at the front desk or if we're in production or if we're in sales. You know, ask our opinion and listen to our opinion when we say it. And the second thing, which I also think is really ironic when we're talking about class and race, I needed an intern this summer. And um, it was a struggle to have an intern in my department, even though other, other departments had interns. Now, when I was received the list of, um, from another department of where, you know, they, they'd fax us to all the personnel departments and universities, I hit the roof. They were all Ivy League schools. I have not finished college. I will probably never set foot in Ivy League school. And I was screaming to my coworker, why aren't we getting our interns from City College? Why aren't we getting our interns from Hunter? Why aren't we getting an interns? I don't care if it's not Howard University, but I want as much as what we've said is a role, you know, roll call to uh, people from all different backgrounds. Well, we have such a plethora of experience and backgrounds here in New York City. I don't even understand why half the time we're looking outside of New York City to get that type of background and influence. So um, that's about it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, just two more now. Uh, at the back, I know you've been holding up your hand for a while. I just have, I just have a comment. Um, I just think that um, it's. I've just started working in publishing, and I, I think that I think that there definitely is is a very entrenched kind of racism. I think that there's a misapprehension that um, affirmative action is at work in publishing, and I don't think that um, maybe a lot of people are aware of it. But I've heard people. Um, it's very uncomfortable to have a superior say, for example, um, you know, we can't fire them because they're a minority. And I think that this is a very prevalent and very passive um, racism. And also, um, I think it's interesting that, sorry, I have to catch my breath. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting that publishing is like supposed to be this bastion, is, is commonly seen as a bastion for women to, um, to become to reach upper level positions, and yet there is this kind of inequity that's also there in terms of race and diversity. I don't. To me, it seems like there must be some there must be some connection there. Um, and if you you know if you want to speak to that, I'd, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Speak to about um, about the number of women in publishing, and is is it too many, too little, or? At at our house, there there are not a lot, <laughs> but. Uh, you know the, those Rolling Stone ads, uh, perception, reality. Um, I think we're dealing with uh, some a phenomenon akin to that. 
but I think it's, uh, it's interesting to note that most of the, uh, the women who've made it to um, prominent positions in publishing, and there, there are a goodly number of them, which is a very good thing, uh, have done so largely, I think, uh, as a result of uh, what Jerry was suggesting, because at one stage or another in their careers, they had powerful mentors who looked to their interests and helped them along. Uh, they were often uh, female mentors, sometimes male, but there was a, a system in place that, uh, that helped them move along. And uh, that's what we, we're severely lacking in um, what we've been talking about. Actually, uh, I think it's worth looking at the phenomenon of the rise of powerful women in publishing because it really it was based on mentoring partially, but also big financial results because in the culture of publishing um, uh, years, 20, 30 years ago, there was uh, the, the little department uh, back in the corner called subsidiary rights, <laughs> um, where, well, we'll let this girl do subsidiary rights and permissions, and, and, and for reasons too complicated to go into now, the market for subsidiary rights, and particularly paperback, exploded. And all of a sudden, the girl in subsidiary rights was bringing back a million dollars plus into the coffers of uh, stuffy old um, mainstream hardcover house. And eventually, it, um, it began to dawn on, uh, on, on the men who ran the business at that time that those girls in subsidiary rights were actually smart, savvy businesswomen who knew how to handle uh, themselves and bring home the bacon. And therefore, um, these many years later, there are many powerful uh, women in publishing in all departments. And I think that would provide at least one possible model for uh, advancement of minorities into positions of, um, of, of real power in publishing um, bringing home the financial bacon. Okay. One last question over there. Yes. Um, I'd just like, before we leave in the limited time that we have, for us to address the ways in which we can influence leadership in publishing to change their approach. Uh, I think Kelly Gary's point earlier about the makeup of the panel and really the makeup of the room is well taken, the fact that the leadership of publishing is not well represented here in this room. Um, but I think that there are creative ways, other ways that people, resourceful people, can be recruited into publishing. Uh, one, one way that I would suggest is being open to people who, who are interested in changing careers. I've had enough people from other um, realms of the media approach me about coming into publishing that I know that there are people out there and there are people with skills. There are people um, in other ends of the media that have the same kind of skills and discernment that one needs to have in publishing on the editorial and in other roles of leadership. So I would just like to hear us talk about those ways that we can um, lobby the leadership in publishing to make some of the changes that we say that we want. Thank you. This will have to be our, our last effort because we're really running out of time. Just uh, briefly. Well, I continually find myself lobbying management, trying to get them to do all sorts of things um, that have nothing to do with. And so um, 
And I'm still trying to figure out how to get them to <laughs> do what I want them to do. Um, I don't know if there's any quick or even not so quick way of um, persuading the powers that be that one, that there is an, that change is, first of all, one, that change is required or desirable, and two, that um, they should, um, that how to get them to agree to do that. Um, I think most executives would tell you that, uh, as far as the first question, they would not be persuaded that change is necessarily desirable. So I think that would be the first step. And I think that argument would, before anything, before any sort of institutionalized program can be seriously entertained, I think that question has to be sufficiently um, debated and addressed. Thank you. Uh, well, the, the way I do it is very subtly. I, um, when a position comes available, I let people know who are of diverse cultures so that they can send their resume um, to this person so that they have resumes, not the typical ones, that they usually get. And um, in a lot of cases, it's, it's been somewhat effective at, at Henry Hope, anyway. And I think, you know, and I think them, I, I think it's not that the management doesn't want to have a more diverse workforce. It just takes a lot more effort. And I don't think they want to go out and make that effort. So if you can help out, you know, by recommending people, I, I, I don't think that they're, you know, offended by that. I think they welcome that. Yeah. And, and it's been productive. I don't, yeah, I agree. I don't know if you can actually create a, a program uh, to do this. It's it's going to be done on an individual basis from house to house and even within the house from imprint to imprint. Um, the bottom line is still going to be, as it always is, in publishing dollars. And as more and more books by people of color are being sold, are being bought, and more money is coming through those front doors, it then becomes a much better uh, wedge, a much better lever to use to try to uh, open it up a little bit further because the bottom line is that it's, 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 it's about money. So that's the only way until, until that happens. There really isn't a way that you could set up some sort of regimentation. Joy, last thought on this one. I know you're not within publishing, <coughs> but as an observer. I had a, I had a thought on the whole idea of audience, and and I heard I was listening to what that guy said back there about you know we, us manufacturing or putting our own images out there. You know, sometimes we need these publishing companies too, and I think that the companies need to know that you know African American books have audiences larger than African American populations. <laughs> You know that, that you know Indian Native American books have audiences larger than just Native people. You know I, what the poetry and the writing that has influenced me probably as much or more than anything is African American, and 
I was going to ask you about the Human Bookstore in Denver to see if it was still there. Yeah. But you know, yeah. these audience—it's open. The market. Yeah. We like to read. I like to read what everybody's up to. You know, and our experience. Yes, there's differences. You know, in my tri there's diff tribal differences, but it's really important that we realize that we're connected and we're related in ways much more than Shakespeare to say some uh, Euro European American student for, who with English descent. I mean, in a way. We're very similar. We're living together in a particular time and place, and we can hear each other. Yes, there are specifics of, of identity and of experience, but we can hear each other, and, you know, we can read. You know, I read. I'm a reader of anything that's good. You know, that's ex well, some things that aren't, you know. <laughs> I love trashy biographies, you know. <laughs> but... Uh, the audience, it's open, you know, it's, uh, you know, we're part of each other and we read widely. Jerry, your last thought? I just want to uh, echo what Manny says um, in that I think that the, the approach that's uh, going to get um, us the farthest on this question is not to depend on the kindness of powerful strangers but to make uh, powerful economic um, arguments um, I, and, and show powerful economic results. I, I was heartened to see in the New York Times this morning um, that Crown um, is uh, putting together and putting out very quickly a, a commemorative volume on the um, Million Man uh, March, which I was also surprised, I should say. And I was talking to Manny in the waiting room, and he um, is of the opinion that uh, Random Crown, which is part of the Random House, which is, of which Crown is a part, is going to sell a couple hundred thousand uh, copies of this book, no doubt at a painful price to the uh, consumer. I think that makes a world of difference in the consciousness of the people who uh, run Random House, and uh, don't if if that indeed um, happens, don't think they'll not only be looking for more books like that, but for more um, editors, publicists, and uh, marketers who can make books like that happen. And I think that's that's how we're going to get there from here. Yes, it will. As long as publishers get to make the money doing what they do, why do they take these chances? If they can make money on books like the one you just mentioned, I think they can. Because it's a black editor. Diversify their sales. It's a black editor. But, but I, I, I'm sorry, I don't see the relationship between a, a diversity initiative and selling. And, and making more money, but well, I just don't see that. Publishing good books, it also it, it also will. I mean, this may sound trite, but one way to attract candidates, good candidates, to uh, one's publishing house is quite simply to publish good books. I mean, I wonder how many people, um, you know, came to Random House because once upon a time, Toni Morrison was the senior editor there. Yeah, I think. We really do have to wrap it up, otherwise a large publishing company called McGraw-Hill will throw us out. Um, I do thank you all for being here. You've been 
a terrific audience and the best example we can think of of more people who should be in publishing. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs>